We're going to summarize 1 John and conclude 1 John tonight. Going to summarize and conclude 1 John tonight. So if you turn your Bibles to the first epistle of John. We'll take just a step back for a moment because this will be our last look at 1 John and want to bring you back to your memory what we've studied so far so you'll be able to remember what we've done. This letter is probably written toward the near end of the first century. It is probably written to churches in the area of Asia, especially Ephesus. The author does not identify himself. Look how it begins in 1 John chapter 1, what was from the beginning? We don't have the language here of Paul, an apostle, or John, or the elder, or anything. It doesn't tell us. It does not identify the author. So we're left to conjecture concerning the identity of the author, but we are pretty confident that it was none other than John the apostle, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple who wrote also the fourth gospel. Why do we think that? Well, there's the language, and this book matches the language in the Gospel of John. We'll look at some of that language in, in just a moment. But also church tradition, there is not among the patriarchs, there's not a single different theory than the fact that John the Apostle wrote it. There is absolutely no controversy when you look at the church fathers, whether it's Clement or Tertullian or Origen, they all say it's John the Apostle. But also, he wants us to know, whoever the author might be, and I think it's John, he wants us to know he has been, was, an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning. Now, you know that sounds just like the gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Right there, there's your clue. You can go no further. What was from the beginning. What we have heard. Notice the senses. What we have seen. What we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the, there's another very Johannine word, logos. In the beginning was the word, there's the word, word. So whoever writes this wants us to know that he has heard the Messiah, he has seen the Messiah, he has beheld the Messiah, he has handled the Messiah. Well, there's not many people who make that list. The apostles make that list. And John the Apostle certainly makes that list. Another clue is that it might be an apostle is the authority with which the author writes. He addresses the recipients of the letter as children. He doesn't do it pejoratively. He's not making fun of them. But he does say little children even or dear children. He has the spiritual father of this church. He has authority over them. And he does not hesitate to address them properly as his children in the faith. So in the first century, church in Asia, especially around Ephesus, written by John the Apostle, same language as the fourth gospel. And what is the occasion? Whenever we have a, a letter, a good question is, all letters are occasional literature. What is the occasion that prompts the writing of this letter? The occasion is there is a heresy that has come into this congregation and other congregations. Uh, the fancy word for it is Gnosticism. What this 
early or, or precipient Gnosticism was teaching was that Jesus himself, that, that the Christ was never actually flesh, that the spirit of the Christ, the Messiah, might have inhabited the earthly rabbi Jesus at his baptism. Certainly the Messiah would have had nothing to do with the crucifixion, so the spirit of the Messiah would have exited or left or escaped Rabbi Jesus before the crucifixion. And they thought that salvation does not come anything to do with the cross. In fact, the Christ had to escape before the cross, but salvation rather comes through having illumination or a certain knowledge. Thus, the word Gnostic, Gnosis is knowledge. So they have a code, a key, a knowledge, and of course, they're the ones who have it. And if you have this knowledge, then you are saved. It starts in the church. It diminished the importance of what would John tell us? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John, both in his gospel and in his letters, wants us to know that the Word became fully flesh and dwelt among us. These folks had been these false teachers. He calls them antichrist. They've been part of the church. Now they've gone out of the church. And he says the fact they've left the church is a sign. They're never really part of the church anyway. Is this a letter? Perhaps, but it doesn't have the usual features of a letter. There's no sender, you know, like Paul, an apostle to the church at Philippi. No, not sender, recipient. There's no greeting, no grace and peace. There's no thanksgiving. I thank my God for putting all my remembrance of you. So the elemental parts of a letter are missing. And so some argue that it is much like a sermon as it is a letter. Well, what is the vocabulary that seems to be so much John's? We'll see some of it tonight. Born again, born from above, light, life, word, eternal life, love, even emphasis on the devil or on the evil one or flesh, all come to mind. Overflowing the devil and especially the emphasis on the incarnation. Emphasis on the incarnation. Well, let's look back at chapter 1 real quick. We're just going to pick out a key verse in each of these chapters. So when you leave tonight, you're going to have 1 John in your pocket all the way because we've reviewed it, and we'll get to chapter 5, I promise. Let's go back to chapter 1. We did the first two verses. The writer has seen, heard, beheld, and handled. We'll look at verse 5. We have a few occasions in this book where God is something, and this is one of them. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. He'll also tell us God is love. God is light. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Over and over again, he emphasizes the crucifixion, the payment for our sins called propitiation, cleansing from the cross, the blood of Jesus, emphasis tonight in chapter 5 on the blood. So those who thought it took knowledge have missed it. It doesn't take knowledge. It's obedience, heart commitment, and belief in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 9. I hope you like this verse. I bet you memorized it when you were a kid. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess he was crucified and thus he can forgive. 
important message there in, in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we have emphasis on obedience and emphasis on love of the church, love of our brother. Those two themes are constant throughout this little letter, keeping the commandments and loving your brother. Now, keeping the commandments, it, it does make sense that you would give that kind of teaching to a church that was tempted by this Gnosticism that said they have a secret knowledge to be saved. In fact, I, I, I postulated earlier that even today we have people putting on certain seminars, breaking Bible codes, they have the revelation, the knowledge, because really, I mean, who's really into commandment keeping? It'd be easier just to have some special knowledge, right? And so John's telling them it's not gnosis, it's not knowledge, it's the obedient work of commandment keeping. By this we know, chapter 2, verse 3, that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. He says it in chapter 3, he says it in chapter 5, we must be commandment keepers. Verse 10, love of the brother. The one who says... He loves his brother, abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Do you love your brother? Verse 15, do not love the world. Now here's the dichotomy here. He's going to teach us we can be children of the Father or children of the devil. We can live in the world or we can live in the Spirit. Two spheres. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, the Father, the world, two different spheres. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard, the Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have risen. From this we know that it is the last hour. The last hour for the gospel writers and the letters of the epistles is the whole time from the ascension of Jesus all the way to his return. So this last hour is that duration of time from his coming, his, his ascension, and his coming again. And so it is the last hour. And then the use of this not Christ, but the one against the Christ, this word that only appears in John's letters, though the image appears elsewhere. The language of antichrist is only used here. Now remember I said that this heresy was teaching that Jesus in the flesh was not the Christos, the anointed one, the Christ. Well, look at verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? There's his enemy. Who's the liar? Who's the enemy? Who's the false teacher? Who's the, carrying the spear of the Antichrist? The one that says knowledge is salvation but denies that this rabbi Jesus is the anointed one, the Christos, the Christ, the Messiah, however you want to call it. That's the Antichrist, verse 22, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And then I got a really nice new favorite verse. You, you read the scripture a lot and you come up with favorite verses. 1 John 2, 25. I did a whole funeral on this one verse a few weeks ago. And this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. That's a good promise. In fact, in chapter 5, you're going to see the importance of eternal life again. 
And this is the promise that Jesus makes to us, eternal life. Then verse 29, that language of being born again. If you know, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. We'll see tonight there's three times that we're born of God, and one of them is right behavior. If we practice righteousness, this is the first one in, um, in chapter 2, 29. We are born of him if we practice righteousness then we get to to chapter 3 verse 8 the one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning the son of god appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil so in john's literature there's this emphasis on the enemy of the christ the enemy of god the devil and those who practice sin live and are like their father the devil verse 15 Again, love for the brother. That emphasis comes up in almost every chapter. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. That we might also lay down our lives for the brethren. Man, this is powerful language for church here. Christ died for you. You must die for your brother or sister in Christ. Christ died for you, you must be willing to lay down your life for your brother or sister in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. Test the evil spirits, he's saying. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. These false teachers that have risen in this Johannine community in Asia, you need to test the spirits just because they can talk in tongues or whatever spiritual manifestation the gifts they might show, the claim just because they teach with authority. Don't, don't buy it. You need to test the spirits. And what is the test that you give the spirits? And I emphasized last week, whenever there's a heresy, you take that heresy to Christology. What do they teach? What do they say about Jesus? What do the Mormons say about Jesus? It's not just right. What do the Jehovah's Witnesses say about Jesus? It's not just right. You can always tell truth by what they say about Jesus. By this you know the Spirit of God, verse 2, chapter 4. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ, that's Joshua Christos, Jesus Christos, the one in the flesh, the one anointed, has come how? In the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, I told you there's three times that we're born again or born from above in this letter. The second one here is in chapter 4, verse 7. The, right one, the first one was if we do right behavior, if we live righteously, we're born again. But now he tells us in verse 7, if we love, we're born again. Beloved, 4-7, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He tells us God himself is love. Verse 9, by this, the love of God was manifested in us that we, God has sent his only begotten son to the world that we might live through him. It sounds so much like John 3-16, doesn't it? And then who, who could not love 4-19? We love, why? Because he first loved us. 
Now we head into the new territory in chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. We have this image here, believing right. So in 2.29 it was if we behave right. In 4.7 it was if we love right, we're born again. And now in 5.1, if we believe right, we're born again. So we must behave right sign of being born again, loving the church right as a sign of being born again, and now having good Christology, the right, believing the right thing about the Christ, about Jesus. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, don't tell me the Christ descended and left him. Whoever says that Jesus himself is a Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. And by this we know we love the children of God, and we love God and hear this emphasis again on commandment keeping, and we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How is it that we find victory in the midst of following Christ? It is the act of faith in Jesus being the Christ, the act of faith in his crucifixion being the work of God, the act of faith in his glorious resurrection. Whoever believes, whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and the victory has overcome the world, dash our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? How many times has he said it? You get the idea he's really mad at these false teachers. Who is it that overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You have this very interesting Christology in John. Some people tend to be what we have, say, have a low Christology. A low Christology emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. And we see some of that in John. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Low Christology passages will be passages where Jesus is hungry or thirsty or tired. And he seems awfully human. Or even in John's gospel, that's the gospel where Jesus does what? That's so human. He weeps at a funeral. You remember that with Lazarus? So that is what we would call a, a low Christology. A high Christology emphasizes Jesus as co-creator with God. And who does that too? John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he tells us eventually in that introduction, John, nothing was made without the Christ. He is co-creator with the Father. And so in this letter, we see this high Christology that we must believe that this rabbi Jesus is the Son of God. I personally tend toward a high Christology and have to be reminded of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And sometimes we forget that, but John, such a good theologian, does a wonderful job of reminding us both of his lowness as man and his highness as God, this is the one who came by water and blood. Now, what? Where are we going here? I didn't lose you, did you? Did I? Verse 6. 
And this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not water only, but with water and with blood. What in the world is this about? We were doing real good till we got to water and blood. We can postulate, as I already did at the beginning, that the false teachers, the ones who carry the spirit of the Antichrist, those who've gone out from the church, the heretics, they taught that the spirit of the Christ came down upon this rabbi Jesus at his baptism, but escaped him before the crucifixion. So the opponents were saying something like this. Yes, yes, this, the, the water, yes, the Christ was with Jesus at the water, but the Christ was not with Jesus at the blood. Now, does it make sense? So John is arguing, no, no, it's not just. It is not just at his baptism. It is important to believe that the spirit of the Christ was all the way to the crucifixion and the resurrection. So we'll read it that way now in verse 6. This is the one who came. Yes, his ministry started with the baptism. But don't forget about his crucifixion. He was still the Christ then, Jesus Christ. Not you're saying it start, it's all about his baptism. No, it's not. Yes, God was present in his baptism, and the dove descended, and the voice from Heaven thundered, this is my blood, beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. But it's not only the water. Yes, it's the crucifixion too. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is of truth. So now we have three witnesses. We have the witness, verse 8, three, bear witness. We have the Spirit and the water and the blood. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Christ, the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call the Spirit. The Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Christ. The water, the baptism is evidence. Remember John the baptizer? You know, behold the one who takes away the sins of the world. His baptism is a testimony from the words of John the baptizer. The presence of the Spirit, the thundering heaven proclamation, and the blood, verse 8. These three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, verse 9, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he is born witness concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has witness in himself. And the one who does not believe, God has made him, him a liar. Because he has not believed in the witness that God has concerning his Son. Put another way. The enemies in this community, the false teachers were saying something like this. They were God's children. They believed in God. And John says, no, you don't. If you believe in God, you have to believe in the testimony of God. And the testimony of God is that Jesus is the Christ. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you're calling God a liar. You see that? So don't tell me that you are following God if indeed you will not believe his testimony concerning his son, the Christ. Now, verses 11 and 12 kind of go with my, my new favorite verse over there in chapter 4. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. God has given us eternal life. Could the gospel get more basic than this? God has given us eternal life. 
And this life is in his son. He who has the son, verse 12, has life, but he who does not have the son does not have the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus, by the same author, John's Gospel, chapter 14. And how many people come to the Father in another way? No one comes to the Father except through me. How consistent is this writer with the writer of the Gospel? These things, verse 13, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may have eternal life. Eternal life's awfully important when the morgue's full, isn't it? Eternal life is awfully important when death comes to your family. I'm telling you about the Son of God in order that you may have that thing he gives to us, those who believe eternal life. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, notice according to his will, if we ask anything, as long as we're following the will of God, you can count it done. He hears us. I love that. He hears us. Isn't that the Yahweh of the Old Testament? Remember, they're slaves in Egypt and they're crying. And doesn't Moses remind us that God hears the cries of his people? What does the psalmist tell us? God hears the cries of his people. We have a God with really big ears. He hears us. I don't feel like he's hearing me, Pastor. His ability to hear is not based upon your feelings now, is it? He hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. And we know that we have requests which we have asked from him. Verse 16 gets in some difficult water again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will, will for him give life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. There is accountability in this community. And for those who are falling into sin, he reminds them all the way back to chapter 1, if anyone has sin, let him confess his sin, and God is just and righteous to forgive us from our sins. But if someone commits a sin that leads to death, what is that? It's rejecting What's the, what's the major sin in 1 John? You don't have to guess by now. Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. That is the abomination that takes one away from eternal life. If you see someone saying and teaching that Jesus is not the Christ, you can pray for them, but it's not going to do any good. In fact, don't even do so, he says. They are of the Antichrist. The sin leading to death is clear from the first chapter to the last chapter the liar is, the one who has the spirit of the Antichrist is the one who says that this rabbi Jesus is not the Christ all the way from the water to the blood. And John would certainly say from the birth. He would say from the, co the uh, creation of the cosmos, from before the cosmos forever, he is the Christ indeed. Verse 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins and I was already told us before that it's very clear that he knows that even followers of Jesus fall into sin. So he's not saying that we are, we are always absolutely sinless. We know that from the fact he says we need to confess our sins. In fact, he says if we say we have no sin, we are liars earlier in this book. 
But he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and is giving us understanding. I think that's a play against his Gnostic enemies. They claim to have the understanding. They claim to be in the know. See what he does with play here? We know that the Son of God has come. You who are saying that he's not the Christ. We know that this rabbi Jesus was the Son of God. And guess what? The knowledge you think you have? Nope. He's given us understanding or that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. And who is this? You Gnostics, in case you miss it, in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true and eternal life that you're going to miss because you've committed the sin not identifying Rabbi Jesus as a Christ. Little children, guard yourself from idols. The message translates the, the last verse something like this. Don't chase every facsimile. Don't chase every false notion, every false teaching. Don't chase that which is not real. Chase the truth. What a powerful, powerful book. Jesus has died. God was active in his death. He paid for our sins that if we have sins, we confess them and we can be forgiven. And what he gives to us is eternal life. And we can know that we are born of him because we try to behave right, because we love the church right, and because we believe right that Jesus is the Christ. This is a really, really good foundational theological book about Christology and what to believe about Christ. But I'll close with this new little favorite verse. And this is the promise that he himself has made to us eternal life. Let us pray. Oh God, we are forever children because we followed the one who died and we have risen with him. Give us your grace and your peace and the confidence to know that we have a God who hears our confession, forgives our sin, and hears the prayers of his people. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen.